Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kristen. Well, good morning again. Um, what we have been doing for the past few weeks is we're going to take an um, extended season in the life of our church and ask the question, who are we? And what kind of church do we want to be? And th- the reason why uh, we're doing this is uh, many, but uh, one of which is Redeemer has experienced uh, a bit of an internal transition uh, recently in that I'm still new here. The, the you know, new pastor is still relatively new. And another big reason is that the world has experienced a big external transition with COVID, of course. And so in light of all of that, there's, things are just kind of funky. Uh, Barna's, Barna did some research and found out that during the pandemic, uh, one in three Christians stopped attending church altogether, both in person and online. And if those statistics are true for our little community, that means that you have uh, some people in our community that have, in the past year and a half, just kind of gone away for whatever reason. And so you have a smaller group of core members. You have a larger amount of new faces, new visitors. Uh, You have a new pastor, and you have a global pandemic, which means funky transition. Everything feels new and different for everybody. And so our, our leadership got together and said, we need to take a season and just return to some of our core values, our, our, our core principles, return to our overarching vision and think through who are we as a church and who do we want to be? And so last, you know, two weeks ago, we talked about that we want to be a storied church. Uh, last week, we talked about that we want to be a grace-centered church. And today, we're going to talk about that we want to be a fruitful church. And I realize that's a little bit of a weird, that's kind of weird language. Uh, but what I, what I mean by that is that in the Bible, when the Bible uses the word fruit, it uses it as a metaphor to refer to supernatural character change. That fruit is this image of supernatural character change. In fact, if you look at our, even just our little passage this morning, uh, Paul is describing what happens in somebody's life when they become a Christian. The Holy Spirit comes in and produces this fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, on and on and on. Meaning that the Holy Spirit himself makes somebody who starts to trust in Jesus more loving, more joyful, more kind or whatever. But here's what's interesting. Paul uses a botanical metaphor. He, he, he uses the word fruit. He doesn't use the word virtue. He doesn't use the word attribute. And I think the reason why he does is because he's, he's using a word, he's using an image to try to capture something that is unique and distinct about Christian change over against every other type of transformation, over against any other kind of change, that Christian change is, is organic. You think about how a tree grows, or you think about how a child grows. There's, there's something, it, it's alive. There's something on the inside that's growing it out. It's inside out, organic growth, which is different from what Tim Keller has called mechanical growth. You think about it like this. If you want to make a pile of firewood grow, 
what do you do? You call up your firewood person, they roll up with their truck, and their truck bed's full of firewood, and they take it and they throw it on the pile, and the pile gets bigger, it grows. But it's only growing externally. It's outside-in mechanical growth. But when we say, or when I use that language this morning, that we want to be a fruitful church, I mean that we want to be a place where people's lives are actually changed from the inside out, where people's character really is transformed, where people uh, do encounter Jesus, people's marriages are healed, where addictions are recovered from, where where people become less self-focused and more focused on God and more focused on their neighbor. And, And the reason why I think this is important for us as a church to talk about this is because it's really easy for churches to make the mistake of thinking that, yes, people change, but they change mechanically. And when people, when churches adopt that way of thinking, that people change, but they change mechanically, outside in, then they make the mistake of really boiling everything that you do down as a church to two things. And here's what I mean. The, the first mistake is that churches can say, well, all that we do as a church is just get people to believe the right things. That's the point of why we exist. We want to get the right data in your brain. And so ministry becomes about teaching. Church becomes about, church is basically a classroom. Uh, it's a TED talk with a, you know, a good you know, opening warm-up band. Uh, Bible study becomes about data mining for theological or historical nuggets. Growth is, is purely about whatever God is teaching you right now. And so it's all academic, it's all cerebral, which is, you know, we've we got to be careful here because believing the right things is important. Of course it's important, but here's the problem with that. The problem with that approach is it's easy to believe the right things. It's easy to be theologically correct, get an ace on a theology test, and give zero rips for your neighbor could care less about the city. And it's possible to be theologically orthodox and still be cold, rigid, racist, materialistic, self-righteous. Just having information doesn't equal transformation. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's mechanical growth. It's just piling up the firewood, thinking if you just load up podcasts, data, theology, then you'll magically transform into being a person that loves God and loves your neighbor, and that's just, it just doesn't work like that. So that's, that's one way that churches make this mistake of believing that people change mechanically, is just get people to believe the right stuff. The other problem, or the other approach, is that churches then say, well, no, it's not about believing the right stuff, it's about doing the right stuff. We just gotta get people to do the stuff. Just sign up to bring the meals, and show up at the Bible study, and sign up to serve at the soup kitchen, and Go pray more and give away your money more and do, like, fill up your calendar with more stuff, which means ministry is not teaching, ministry is activity. Uh, some of y'all might know the name Willow Creek. Willow Creek is a big mega church right outside of Chicago. They, they've really influenced how uh, church growth strategies have developed in the past number of decades. And their approach to ministry was basically produce, create um, programs and get people to participate in them. That's what the church, that's what ministry was. The church produces programs and then get the church to participate in them. And so uh, one of their 
executive ministry directors uh, said this. He said, he summarized their approach to ministry like this. Participation is a big deal. We believe the more people participating in these sets of activities with higher levels of frequency will produce disciples of Christ. In other words, their whole philosophy of ministry was church produces programs, get people to sign up for programs, people become disciples of Jesus. They did this uh, multi-year internal ministry audit. They just kind of evaluated all of the stuff that they were doing and whether or not it worked. And at the end of a multi-year ministry audit, they discovered, the, the result was they realized just getting, to just getting people to participate in programs, that's a lot of Ps right there, people participating in programs doesn't produce perfect disciples of Jesus. I tried to keep the P going, I couldn't do it. Just getting people to do stuff doesn't make people's heart love God more or love their neighbor more. Point being, activity doesn't equal maturity. It's just piling up the firewood. If you just stuff your calendar with religious stuff, it'll make you a disciple of Jesus. So here's why this matters for us, because we want and we believe that change is organic. It's inside out. But the question is, okay, A, what, what is that? What does that even look like? And then B, how do you get that to happen? What does organic Christian change actually look like? And then how do you produce it? Those are the two questions I want to try to answer with the remainder of our time this morning. What does organic growth, what does Christian growth look like and feel like? And then how do you get it to happen? So first, what, what is it? What, what, do we, what does it even look like in real life? Well, I'll share a story with you that I heard a number of years ago that was uh, helpful for me to conceptualize what I'm talking about here. This is a story I heard from another pastor named Ligon Duncan. He's a big wig in Presbyterian circles, big lig, as he's known on the streets. And um, he told this story. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but we'll just assume for the sake of the story that it's true, that there was this, he, he told it as if it was true, so we'll, we'll go with that, um, that there was this man in the highlands of Scotland a number of years ago. He was a farmer, worked in the highlands of Scotland, devoted atheist, could care less about the church, could care less about Jesus, and lived his life, and for, you know, this, this man, as we all do at different degrees, had a temper problem, and whenever this man would, you know, something would set him off, he'd be in the fields or he'd be in the barn, something would trigger him and he'd just get frustrated. He'd just lose it, go from zero to a hundred quick and he would just kick whatever was near him. Kick a, you know, bucket or kick a animal, kick a pig, kick a goat, whatever. And um, he, for whatever reason, there was this Christian evangelist that was going through his little area. And I don't know why, but this farmer guy went to go hear the Christian evangelist and heard the gospel preached and becomes a Christian. For the first time, he realizes, oh my goodness, I believe this stuff. I like this stuff. He gives his life to Jesus. His eyes were open. His heart was open. He trusts in Christ. He, he becomes a Christian, goes back home, lives his life now as a Christian. First couple weeks, feeling good, feeling fine, feeling different. And one day, he's out in the barn, and something happens, and he, he, he loses it, and he just kicks, a, you know, kicks an animal again. And after he kicks this animal, he has this wave of, of shame, and he has this wave of 
discouragement and he, and he stops what he's doing and he goes inside and he goes into the kitchen where his wife was. She was at the counter and he, he sits down at the kitchen table and he puts his head in his hands and he starts weeping and he says, it didn't work. It didn't work. I trusted in this Jesus thing and you know, I'm still the same old angry man that I've always been and he's just so frustrated with himself and he's weeping and his wife looks at him and says, sweetie, look at you. You are weeping over your anger. You've never done this before. You've, you have, you, there, is something, there is something different about you. You have a different relationship with your, with your sinful anger inside of you. And what she's pointing out is, yeah, something has happened. Your, your, your sinful anger didn't just get deleted from you. It's still, it's still there, but your relationship, your relationship to it is radically different. You grieve over it. You hate it. And that grief, that hatred over this thing in you is going to translate into a renewed battle against it. But here's the point. Something inside of him got activated. There was an interior life that was new there. And so the question for you and me is, if this is a question that's even interesting to you, if you want to know if you're alive spiritually, how would you know? If you want to ask yourself that question, how do I even know if I'm growing, if, I'm a, if, if there's anything spiritually alive inside of me, maybe the best way to answer that isn't to look outside of you to something external. How often have I been praying? How often have I been serving the poor? How often have I been reading the Bible? How often have I been doing X, Y, or Z? Those are great things to do, but they, are, they may be proof that you're spiritually alive, but they may not be. If you want to know if you're spiritually alive, you have to, you have to ask the interior question, which is, Questions like this, am I becoming more humble and less defensive? Am I becoming more patient with my neighbors and my coworkers and my spouse or my children or my roommates? Do I find myself becoming more patient with them? Do I find myself becoming less stressed out with life? Do I find myself do I, do I find my heart moving towards the kinds of people that five years ago I would have avoided? Do I have eyes in new ways to see injustice and poverty and brokenness in my city that before I just, I just couldn't see, but now I see it and my heart is grieving over it in new ways? Do, here's a big one. Do I find myself saying the phrase, I'm sorry, will you forgive me more often? That, those are all signs of organic growth, of organic change. Or here's another one. Do I find in my heart Jesus himself becoming sweeter to me, more precious to me than I did five years ago? That's what the Spirit does, is he is making you more loving, more joyful, more kind, more gracious, more gentle, more self-controlled. In some ways, what he's doing, like that whole list, the fruit of the Spirit, it's just a picture of Jesus is what it is. Jesus is the one who is supremely loving. He's the one who's supremely joyful, supremely peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, on and on down the list. What the Spirit is doing is he's just making us more like Jesus. And we want to be a church where people's lives are actually changed, where as people encounter Jesus, where that happens in them more often, where people are becoming more and more like Jesus. In some ways, 
we're less interested in people becoming smarter or busier. We're more interested in people becoming more like Jesus. That's what we mean when we talk about organic Christian change. Okay, but here's the second question. How do you get that? How do you make that happen? What do you do? Um, okay, well, let's talk about it. How do you get that to happen? Here's the second thing. Um, this is going to sound strange for a second. I'm going to do a little thought experiment. It'll take 30 seconds. I want you to imagine yourself as a piece of fruit. You can pick any fruit you want. You can have fun with it. You can be a, a kumquat. A plumcot is a thing. Apricot. Apricot, however you pronounce it. Um, if you see yourself as a piece of fruit and you say, okay, why do I, how do I exist? How am I growing? How am I a thing? The only reason why you're a thing is because you're dependent on something else. It's because there is this thing that's bigger than you that is attached to you called a branch, which is connected to the tree. You are only a thing because you are drawing life and nutrients and nourishment from this thing that's pumping life literally into you, so much so that if you were to get disconnected from the branch, you stop growing and you start rotting. Point being, one of the reasons why the Bible uses this language, this metaphor of fruit, is because change is possible, but you can't change yourself. This is radically different from every other religion. This is different from every other worldview that is out there. You, Christian growth is a thing, but it's only a thing to the degree that you're dependent on another's power. This is why it says it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of your willpower. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of your discipline, of your New Year's resolutions, of your whatever. It's the fruit of the Spirit. He's the one that is providing the power and the strength and the nourishment for you to grow. We grow to the degree that we are dependent on something else. And, and again, if you realize this is so radically different from every other worldview, every other philosophy, because every other approach to life says change is possible, but the burden of change is on you. You just think about uh, religion, Every other religion is basically saying change is possible, but change is up to you. You know, Buddha's last words were strive without ceasing. Strive, labor, exert yourself, devote yourself to this stuff, and don't give up. Don't stop. If you do it, maybe you'll change. And you have, you know, progressive secular culture that says the burden of change is on you as well. If you want to change, you have to exercise more. You have to uh, eat better. You have to educate yourself about justice. You have to care for the earth. You have to care for the poor. You have to learn how to vote the correct way. It's on you. And what both groups tend to produce is self-righteous, rigid, angry, graceless types of people. I mean, you, you think about it. How is it possible? If you step back and you look at our world right now, how is it possible to have traditional, more conservative, religious types of people be self-righteous, militant, tribalistic, zero self-awareness, and have liberal, progressive, non-religious people be self-righteous, uh, mi militant, tribalistic, zero self-awareness? 
How is it possible you have two people who believe radically different things producing the same kind of person? And here's why. Because the Bible says, Paul says, both are living under what he calls living under the law. Meaning both have made the mistake of believing changes up to me. I just look to a standard. They disagree on the standards. I look to those standards. I look to that law. And then I try to live up to that law. And it tends to produce rigid, self-righteous, angry, graceless, quick-to-cancel people. And that's just what American culture is right now in some ways. Both religious and non-religious all mixed together. That's just what it is. But here's the thing. Christianity is radically different because Christianity has never said the burden of change is on you. It is being dependent on someone else and something else, namely Jesus. In fact, Jesus made it explicitly clear in the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus says this, Abide in me, which is a weird word. We don't use that word abide, but it's the same word from where we get the word abode, meaning make your home in me, remain in me, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus saying the only way that you can bear fruit is to the degree that you abide in me, the only, to the degree that you remain dependent upon me. Now, how do you do that? Well, think of it like this. Um, in 2018, uh, the powers that be, they, whoever they are, remade the, the Grinch movie. You remember the, you know, it was, was kind of like, it, it looked like a Pixar movie, but it wasn't Pixar. I can't remember what company it was. The Grinch. They made The Grinch 2018. We, our family went as a, uh, to the theater. It was awesome. But what I like about this movie is because it gives you the backstory on why The Grinch wants to steal Christmas. It's like the, the Grinch origin story. And um, you find out when The Grinch was a little kid, a little Grinch, he um, was always by himself on Christmas Day. And so he was lonely, and so Christmas was this kind of trigger for him of pain from his childhood. And so that, that loneliness that he experienced as a kid, it just kind of got twisted, and he became bitter and hateful and resentful. And so he hated the fact that everybody on this big day had family and had fun and had celebration, and so that's why he wanted to steal Christmas. And, of course, the climax of the whole movie... He goes into town in the middle of Christmas Eve, the night before Christmas, and he goes in and he, you know, sucks up all the presents and he steals all the Christmas trees and he rips down all the mistletoe so that when those kids wake up on Christmas morning and they go downstairs and they see nothing, they would feel the level of pain and devastation that he feels. You know, hurt people, hurt people. And that's what he's doing. And so that's what he does. He goes in the middle of the night, steals all the stuff, the kids come down. Christmas is ruined. And he, he has retreated back to his cave, and he's watching the whole thing unfold on his you know, binoculars. And all of these families on Christmas morning, they, they come down, and they, they decide to go into the town square. You remember this? At the end of the movie, they all come down. They all kind of gather around a big circle, and they're kind of mourning together. And they start singing songs. They, start, they just kind of 
are, are, are lamenting and celebrating together as a community. And something about that, as the Grinch is watching this, something breaks in him, and he starts to feel instant shame and regret for what he has done. He's like, oh my goodness, I've made a huge mistake. And so he takes this giant bag of all the Christmas stuff and he goes back down and he gives it back to the, to the community, he gives it back to all these families. And you remember Cindy Lou, one of the little who's, who's, you know, the little girl, she comes up to the Grinch in the middle of his kind of shame, in the midst of his like, oh, I, I, I was the one who did this, I'm so sorry. She comes up to him and she invites him over for family dinner. And he comes over and she puts him at the head of the table which means she's not only hosting her enemy, she is honoring him. And he gets the knife to carve the roast beast. Remember this? She, he gets the knife to carve the thing. He gets it, you know, they put a drink in his hand. And as he's kind of just taking this moment in, he's a t his whole disposition is different. His whole affect is, is completely changed. And he wants to make a toast. He says, before we eat, I, I want to just make a quick toast. And here's what he says. He says, your love and kindness has changed me. Carves it, they eat, credits roll. Sorry, I spoiled the movie. That's how the movie ends. But what was it that changed him? It was an experience of love and kindness. It was not an experience of retaliation. It wasn't even an experience of shame. It was an experience of love and kindness. And I tell you that because human beings are wired the same way. We are only changed to the degree that we experience love and kindness. And so you can stack up all the diet plans and the Bible reading plans and the New Year's resolutions that you want, and those are important and those are good. If you want to be changed in the core of your being, you have to have an experience of change, uh, of love and kindness, which is to say you have to abide in Jesus. As Christians, we believe that the way that you experience love and kindness is by looking to Jesus. There's this verse that I've been meditating on recently. I put it at the beginning of your bulletin. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. This is Paul writing. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. He's just talking about looking at Jesus, beholding the glory of Jesus. When we do that, we are being transformed into the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, I know that's mouthful, but here's the gist. The gist is we become what we behold we become what we behold. And when we simply behold the glory and the beauty of Jesus, of who he is and what he has done for us, we, by the Spirit, start to have an experience of love and kindness. And that transforms us into the image of Jesus. But notice, it is simply by beholding. We don't show up with our resume we don't show up with our report cards. We don't show up with our performance reviews. We simply behold the glory and the wonder and the majesty of who he is, and we drink in and draw life from the very fact that he loves people like us. You may be sitting here this morning, and you're thinking, I don't belong in church. This is weird. I don't believe any of this stuff. I'm ready for him to stop talking so I can go get some more donuts and beat it. Or you may be here and you're thinking, 
this is great. I don't know what I believe about this. But I feel more like the Grinch at the beginning of the movie who feels wounded and tired and suspicious of people and bitter. Or you may be here and you're thinking, yeah, 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 I've heard all this a million times that Jesus loves us, blah, blah, blah. Just move on to like what we're supposed to do next. However you find yourself this morning, the gospel call would look at all of you and say the same thing, to fix your eyes on Jesus. Because when you see who he is and what he has done, that will begin to melt you and transform you from the inside out. The Bible says, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us, which means Jesus did not come for good, perfect, put-together people, because there are none. Those don't exist. The only kinds of people there are are bitter, self-righteous, rebellious, troubled, wounded people like me and wounded people like you. And when you see the cross and you see a love that will not let you go, a, a love that is stronger than your own heart and your own capacity to sin and screw up, when you see a love that is even stronger than your ability to appreciate, that's what begins to overwhelm you. And so just like a piece of fruit, we continue to look to him and draw life from his love and from his kindness, and we don't look anywhere else. We keep beholding Jesus. This is why we keep coming to the table every week. This is why we keep talking about him every week. This is why we pray. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we get together. It's all different avenues, different means to behold the glory and the beauty of Jesus so that we might drink in his love and taste and see that he is good. So who do we want to be? We want to be a fruitful church which is to say we want to be a community, a place where people's lives are actually changed, where we are becoming more like Jesus because we are beholding the beauty of Jesus. That's who we want to be. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus. Some of us, um, maybe even eyes for the first time. Some of us, maybe eyes that have grown cold, have just feel like Jesus isn't where, where it's at. There's life to be found in better places, more exciting places. Would you convince us afresh, all of us, give us renewed confidence in his grace for people like us, in his love for people like us, in his wisdom for foolish people like us, in his uh, mercy for a world that feels so graceless right now, in his uh, sovereign hope in a world that feels so hopeless. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and never look away that we might be transformed into his very likeness. This is our prayer.